Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. There's a great change coming that will threaten us all. I'm going to give you something. What does it do? It has a part to play in all this. And a major one. Tell me where the alethiometer is. I'll destroy all of this. Hello and welcome to the one and only episode of Still Watching His Dark Materials. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. You may hear my demon, my familiar, my cat in the background of this episode. I, I usually keep her elsewhere when we're recording, but uh, full disclosure, she's been sick, so I'm letting her do whatever she wants right now. So, so it's demon, some- not Damon. Well, do they pronounce it as Damon in this episode? I, I don't. I don't actually remember weirdly, but I remember when I like, I, I only started to, to read the book like years ago. I have never finished it, but I, I was, that was my first thing I was confused about. My first of many. I always pronounced it Damon in my head. And, mm-hmm. um, and I think in the audiobooks that I've listened to, they've pronounced it Damon, but I've heard it's called Demon, uh, as well. Um, do we want to just decide on a pronunciation and if we're wrong, we're wrong, but at least we'll be consistent. What do you want to do, Richard? Well, demon, demon. I think in the Matt interest demon? of supporting cancel culture, we'd say demon because uh, Damon is okay. semi canceled. I don't know. Yeah. He's, he's, he's half canceled. All right. So Matt demon, it is, um, <laughs> we are discussing the, just the first episode of the new TV series, uh, his dark materials based on the novels, uh, by Philip Pullman. This episode, uh, season one, episode one is Lyra's Jordan directed by Tom Hooper, written by Jack Thorne. Um, and we're going to talk about that. Richard has not read the books. I've read the books. This is a familiar setup to some of you guys. Um, I can't we're not read. Go- <laughs> we're we're working on it. We're getting Richard some lessons. No, but um, we're not going to delve too deeply. You know, if you basically this, if you haven't read the books, uh, or haven't seen the film that came out several years ago with Nicole Kidman and Daniel Craig, um, and don't know the plot of the story, we're not going to get too deep too, too deep into what you might consider a book spoiler until the end, we're going to talk more directly about a few things. So uh, if you're trying to go in clean, this actually should be kind of a safe uh, conversation for you. But if you want some uh, deeper, juicier book stuff, uh, we will get into that at the end with a warning 
for you guys to jump off. So that's our usual MO. This is our, like I said, our only episode of, uh, that we're covering his dark materials. The, um, we have heard your, your pleas, your cries for us to cover more Watchmen. Um, I think Richard and I both actually kind of, kind of want to do that. I don't want to spring that on you, but we were, we're, I think we're both like lamenting that we only got to do one episode of that. So we're going to like, uh, I'm going to right now commit to keeping the door open to the possibility that we do like a wrap up episode or something like that. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I, season. I think I'd be game for that. I, I think, you know, um, just like the, the, the sort of semi boring behind the scenes, how the sausage is made. It's just that this is like a crazy busy time of year for, for both of us and, and for VF in general. And so it has been a bit hard with this kind of onslaught of all these new shows this season. It's been a bit hard to commit to one, um, for this podcast, but yeah, we, we definitely have heard the, uh, the clamor for more Watchmen. So hopefully we can honor that in some way. Yeah. And as we mentioned, um, on last, the last podcast we did, we will be covering the crown. We're going to do three special episodes around the release of season three of the crown. Um, that will drop, I believe those episodes will drop on the 15th and the 17th. The crown debuts on the 17th Sunday. We'll have basically like a lead up episode on the 15th and then two episodes that release on the Sunday. So, uh, with some great guests, we've got Julie Miller, who's like the queen of the crown on VF.com. We've got some historians we're going to be talking to. It's going to be a great royal time at still watching. Um, and then, uh, on the geekier side of things, uh, Anthony Bresnikin, our, our, uh, one of our newest hires, um, a, a new kid to the industry. No, Anthony, obviously a veteran, um, will be joining me to discuss the Mandalorian. Uh, and I believe that starts on the 14th of November and that will be weekly as well. So there'll be a lot of still watching, even if it isn't the exact show that you always want it to be. Uh, we wish we could do every single show for you. Um, but if Richard and I can squeeze in, uh, you know, a Watchmen wrap up, we definitely absolutely will. Um, I can just say for, um, you will be listening to this after episode three of Watchmen airs. Um, and I, I guess all I will say, and Richard could say more if he wants, but all I will say is that when Richard was watching screeners, he texted me to say, you know, Gene Smart is amazing, isn't oh, she? God. This is the, yeah, this is the Gene Smart episode. We're both big fans and she's incredible in that episode in the show. I think that's really when the show kicks into high gear is episode three, when you're just like, uh, you're, you're comfortable enough in the world. And then Gene Smart comes in as this character. That's a, you know, a, a character from the original comics. And, uh, it's just firing on, on all cylinders. And then how many, um, not to spoil anything, Richard, but how many, uh, of the episodes of Watchmen did you wind up watching? Um, everything I made available. So I think that was six. Right. So episode six is like, incredible so Mm -hmm. you know just you know maybe we'll come back to talk about episode six maybe we'll come back to talk about the finale but hope you're enjoying Watchmen. sorry we can't watch it all with you we are watching his dark materials instead this week um so this is the trilogy of books that philip pullman uh put out is golden compass subtle knife the amber spyglass and he's in the midst currently of writing a new trilogy that takes place sort of around this trilogy called the trilogy is called the book of dust. The first book in that trilogy is called La Belle Savage. And the second book is called the secret Commonwealth. So that has some extra information. If you want to be the smuggest book reader, you can read those books too. They only a little bit inform this adaptation. This is mostly concerned with that original trilogy that he wrote, but stuff like that happens at the beginning of this episode, like the flood that you see Lord Azrael sort of, uh, fording his way through in order to drop the baby off at Oxford. That, uh, that's from this new trilogy. So, you know, there's just some like prequel stuff 
going to be laced in there, but not vital that you've read it if you want to be a book reader. Um, but the most important thing that I want to talk about off the top with you, Richard, is what's tricky to pull off uh, and why you could not have had this uh, adaptation uh, many years ago and why they were only somewhat successful with it several years ago um, is this concept of the, the, the Matt demons, the demons, um, these physical uh, corporeal embodiments of a bit of your soul, which as a child are changeable, uh, and then become fixed as these sort of creatures that are tethered to you as adults. They're physically tethered to you. Uh, they can only go a certain distance from you. It's actually painful, uh, if you're separated, too separated from your demon. Um, and in this world that Phil Pullman has created, they become this, this lifelong companion. It, it's sort of like, you know, this incredible, I wish we had this, you know, and you're never lonely. You're never whatever. You've got this, like, this other thing. And this other thing is not just an extension of you. It's a character unto itself. And this of course requires incredible CG work. When I first saw this episode at television critics association, uh, summer press tour, uh, a couple months ago, the CG work was not done. (laughs) So the demons were like these weird, like, you know, they weren't quite tennis balls, but you know, the, the CG equivalent of that. So to see the finished product, um, I was much more impressed, though I'm not sure it gets me all the way, uh, where I was in the book, because in the book, it's easy to sort of imagine it and suspend your, uh, disbelief. How do these creatures work for you, Richard, um, as someone who doesn't have that book experience? Well, I think Lyra's, um, who has a name beginning with P that I, I'm not going to try to pronounce. Um, you can just call him, you can call him Pan. Pan. Okay. So, um, Pan. Yeah. I think Lyra's works well, you know, even though they're constantly shifting from various species. Um, when, uh, Lord Ezreal played by James McAvoy appears and he has this like snow leopard, um, demon, yeah. I, that to me felt a little bit closer to like John Favreau, Lion King. Like, why is this photorealistic thing talking? You know? Yes. Um, yes. so I think it, it is a tricky thing. I mean, it, you know, and it's, and I think the thing about it, that it's so constant, you know, it's not like, Oh, once in a while, there's the demon. It's like, no, they're like, they are all the time. And so it's just right to, to, to do that kind of meticulous, um, thorough kind of cgi work for a television show like i I think it's mostly um impressive but uh also still a little jarring yeah yeah there's also um mrs coulter's uh golden monkey mrs coulter who shows up you know sort of two-thirds of the way through the episode she's got this golden monkey um that i'm not sure the face i don't know I'll, i'll need to watch more full disclosure i've only seen the first episode but like uh, I've seen it a couple times, but I've only seen the first episode. Um, yeah, I almost wonder if it would have been better, you know, like you need, um, Lord Azrael's Snow Leopard Stelmaria to talk. You need Pantalaimon to talk. You need them all to talk. That's, in, that's an important part of the story. But I almost wonder if they could have done it with like a voice, but you don't see the mouths move. The mouths moving is what's really odd sometimes. Yeah. Especially, I think you're right with Stelmaria. So, um, yeah, yeah, the, uh, it, it's better. And it's, it's interesting because like Pan, Pantalaimon, who's Lyra's, uh, demon, daemon, uh, is such an important part of the book that, and such a character unto himself that, you know, they have, they have to ramp it down a little bit, even, you know, 
uh, you're like, they're constantly there. And I'm like, yes, but still less so than the book. So, you know, by, by, by the nature of the medium that they're doing, I understand it. But, um, yeah, that's the, tr- I think it's, it's the trickiest, one of two very tricky challenges in this story. The other tricky challenge that the movie completely failed to clear, as far as I'm concerned, um, is getting you to really care for and connect with these characters. I mean, Lyra being our main entree into this world, um, you know, so that you're with them as even as you're adjusting to this slightly off our reality reality. Um, so how the casting of Daphne Keene, I think is an incredible choice. She's so, she was so good in Logan. Um, she was mostly nonverbal in Logan, but like, she's so good in Logan. She's, um, I think she's quite good here. What do you think of, of her Lyra? Um, no, I think she's good. I think it's, it's strong casting. Um, she's a good actress. Um, uh, but in a, in a more general sense, in terms of getting to know and like these characters while also being, um, served a heap of exposition. I, 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 I kind of wanted this episode to move a bit more slowly, actually. Mm, um, yeah. I kind of found it a little dull in all its swiftness because I was like, wait, I can't grab onto anything because these scenes just keep moving with the, with the eagerness of a child. And I get that it's about a child, but it should be told by an adult, you know? It just felt very like, you know, rolling very fast and collecting information as it went. Um, so I found it a little hard to engage. Um, uh, you know, I'm certainly curious about what's to come, but, um, have, you know, having not, um, read the book and barely remembering the movie. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I found it a little hard to kind of dive into this world as lovingly, you know, on a technical level as it is crafted. Yeah. You know, um, so it's eight episodes in this first season, which is obviously much more room than the film had. But I, I agree with you. I think it's like, I can't believe she's already leaving with Mrs. Coulter by the end of episode one. That feels so fast to me. Um, and I think, I think of, um, Game of Thrones. You think of the pilot of Game of Thrones, um, which I, you know, in its final version, I think is a really good episode of television. Uh, and, and something that should be studied in terms of getting you, to care about character, a, a large cast of characters you haven't met and a world that you're unfamiliar with. And it's, it's because it takes its time. The, uh, the pilot episode of Game of Thrones is essentially, uh, an old friend visits his friend's home for dinner. That's the first episode of Game of Thrones. And yeah, a kid falls from a tower, but like, that's, that's basically the first episode. One family visits another family for dinner and you get to meet those families. And so if, if like just Lord Asriel's visit was our introduction to Oxford, um, and Lyra and her world there, um, it's called Lyra's Oxford because that's what the section or Lyra's Jordan, Jordan college, um, uh, because that's, um, I think that's what the section of the book's called or it's called Lyra's Oxford. I can't remember, but, um, you're meant to get to know this world before she leaves it for her adventure because you need to, you always need to know <clears throat> on, on these, uh, you know, classic Joseph Campbell hero's journey. You always need to know what the hero's protecting before they leave. So you need to understand what the Shire is right before the hobbits right. leave so that you know what they're fighting for. So you need to know what Lyra is trying to protect in the world of Oxford of Jordan college. And I, don't think we really get that from from this episode at like all. i almost feel like this the pilot episode of this could end with lyra peering through the window and seeing the master pouring the poison into the wine 
and, and Ooh, so thus, yeah. you know, kind of introducing that there is darkness and compl- and moral complexity in this world. Um, and then, but you know, in the previous 58 minutes, just taking the time to really set up in organic ways, the terms of the world, who everyone is, what the demons are without, you know, kind of over explaining it. Like, you know, not to tell talented people how to do their jobs, but it just feels like a little bit, I don't know. I, I, I wanted a bit more texture, um, much in the same, the way we got in the, in the Game of Thrones pilot. And I guess everything like this will be compared to that show for the foreseeable future, which is maybe unfair, but, um, yeah, it's a stark contrast. Haha, <laughs> stark. I'm Claire Fallon. And I'm Emma Gray. We're culture writers, podcasters, and hosts of the show Love to See It. Every week, we give an unapologetically feminist dissection of reality dating shows, rom-coms, and other romance narratives. We unpack all the weird messages they send us about love, sex, and dating. And we dive into all the details with special guests like actors, authors, and cultural critics. You can find Love to See It wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. Well, I mean, the thing is, the 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 person adapting these books this time around is Jack Thorne, who um, you know is a playwright. It has has a long list of credits, but his most famous uh, credit is that he wrote the stage play for Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, um, which uh, people are sharply divided on, and I would say a lot of Harry Potter fans are vehemently against. Um, and the, and I think for this sort of similar reason, that's obviously a, sh- a shorter form adaptation, uh, than this is, but, um, because, you know, for better, or for worse, what JK Rowling was really good at, uh, and what Philip Pullman is really good at, um, is, uh, world building and, and letting you just really sit in that world and understand it and understand all the texture of it. And I think Cursed Child just zips through this like time travel plot <laughs> that like doesn't let you feel, I don't know, the Quidditch games or the, whatever it is you need to feel like to feel like you're in this world. And, um, I, I think that's similar for, for Lyra's, um, her J- Jordan college in Oxford. And I think one of the things that they have expanded for this adaptation that I really like is the, the, the Egyptian culture, the Egyptian characters. We get this in this episode, we get this, um, sort of coming of age rite of passage with one of the, of the Egyptian boys. The Egyptians are the, um, the, you know, itinerant, um, Romani sort of figures in, in the show, uh, in this world. And, um, we, uh, Tony Costa is the name of the kid who's sort of coming of age. And we see this whole ceremony before his younger brother, Billy goes missing. And that, that's a big like thrust for the, for the Egyptians. But that coming of age thing is not in the book. And I think they are really wanting to build out the Egyptians in a way that I think is, is cool. I think it opens up the world to be not just Lyra's point of view, but this other point of view, um, as well. And so, as you say, like, if you're going to do that, if you're going to open up the Egyptians, which I think you should, then yes, just spend more time here in Oxford in Jordan, getting to know the Costas, getting to know Fodacorum, getting to know all of the, all of their culture before we leave, you know? Yeah, and like I don't know, these days aren't sort of prestige cable viewers pretty patient, you know? Like I think a lot of us are are just are used to kind of waiting for something to 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 reveal itself slowly. I don't think we need it. To, you know, it, it feels almost like a network pilot in that way. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think what I worry about then uh is that um the show might be impatient to get to the action 
And as with Game of Thrones, like, I feel like any story that's impatient to get to the action doesn't really understand why we care about the action in the first place, which is the characters and the world. Do you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, all right. So, uh, you know, you and I are of a, of a similar mind about that. Um, but what's something I do want to very much praise, heap a lot of praise on, um, is James McAvoy's, uh, performance as Lord Azrael. Um, because this is a really hard character, I think, to embody. Uh, once again, Daniel Craig played him in the film a few years ago. Um, Lord Azrael, uh, is, you know, this, the one, the one family member that Lyra is aware of in this world. And, um, he needs to be imperious and cold and reserve and, and removed. Um, but at the same time, like someone that you're, I don't know, in, there has to be a warmth with the cold. And I think James McAvoy is incapable of delivering like a pure cold performance. There's just something about him as a performer where you're always drawn into what he's doing, even if it is, um, as brusque as Lord Azrael can be in this, in this episode. Um, are, are you with me on that, Richard? Like where, where are you on, on the, the McAvoy of it all? Yeah, no, I mean, he's always a welcome actor to me. Like I, 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 pr- I pretty much like him in everything, maybe minus a couple of the many characters he plays in Glass or, um, in, uh, sure. the other one. Um, sure. yeah. Uh, um, but split. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I split. Thank you. Um, uh, yeah, again, I, I think it would be nice if we had more time just to kind of sit with him and really kind of see the, the nuances of his relationship with his niece. Um, but yeah, like I, I trust that McAvoy, you know, saw something interesting in the material that he wanted to, you know, however dark it may be, <laughs> uh, be to, to, to do it, you know, and maybe that, that means further scripts or whatever. But, um, yeah, no, I like him in it because he, 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 he implies like, the sort of excitement and danger of the, of the, of the bigger world. He kind of, you know, rushes in with this, you know, blast of kind of Arctic air. Like it's a, it's It's good having someone of that level of fame play the part. I think, I think it works because it makes him loom that much larger uh, in both lives yeah. and our estimation, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Like the rest of the cast, it's a great cast. Um, we should say, but like a lot of the, um, Oxford Dons, um, and the, um, you know, the Egyptians are like Game of Thrones character actors that I recognize. You know what I mean? That's the level that we're talking about, yeah. uh, there to a certain degree, with the exception of Anne Marie Duff, uh, McAvoy's real life, uh, ex-wife who plays Ma Costa, I think does a great job as this woman who's lost her child and is sort of frantic and, um, uh, anxious about it. Um, but that, you know, it's to have a world populated, by uh, mostly character actors, even, even, uh, Ruth Wilson, who's, you know, been in some incredible television is a television actress, right? But James McAvoy is, you know, is more of a movie star. And so you're right to have him come in in that role is, um, you, you sit up and pay attention and, and you're, you're glammed by him as the way that like the Oxford uh, needs to be glammed by him. And, um, the, um, yeah, the, you're talking about the, the, um, I don't know, the, the, the impatience of this episode, the, the rush of it. And I agree with a lot of that, but I think the impatience and the rush of Azrael works. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. He's like, I, I got what I need. I gotta go. Like, dirigible in, dirigible out. I'm gone, you know, sort of thing. So, um, yeah. And I think a lot of that's down to McAvoy, which brings us to Ruth Wilson, who's playing, um, 
Mrs. Coulter, Marissa Coulter. This is the role played by Nicole Kidman in the film. And um, this is a woman who's supposed to be like extremely charming, extremely glamorous. I think Ruth Wilson is a fascinating choice for this role. Like Nicole Kidman, I think is very um, obvious, perfect casting for this. And I think Ruth Wilson is a little off uh, the, the expected. And I actually am quite excited by that. Um, what did you think of her, of her debut here? Yeah, I like her. I, I sort of have, I, I never watched, um, Luther where she was, yeah. kind of, I guess, the villain on that. Um, I, I certainly saw the Lone Ranger, uh, which she is in. <laughs> um, and then the affair, I kind of wasn't that interested in. So I, I wasn't, re- I wasn't really sure what to make of her. Um, but then I saw her in King Lear, uh, that Glenda Jackson did on Broadway and she played two parts. She played, um, Cordelia, the, the one of the daughters of Lear, but also the fool, uh, and she was like really oh. incredible, um, and like wow. and, and showed a, a real versatility of range. So, um, and I think you know this role is a good example of that. That she can she can play different shades. You know, she's done a lot of um, more you know sort of wide eyed innocent stuff, villainous stuff in Luther, and now this is kind of this mix of of warmth and not warmth. And um, yeah, I think she's good. And and I you know. Like again, all these big names signing on, it makes me think like, oh, maybe there's something more to come. Like, isn't Lin-Manuel Miranda showing up at some point? Like, um, you know, uh, I, I hope that there was a vision communicated to all these actors that we have yet to see. Yeah, so that's the casting I'm actually the most concerned about is Lin-Manuel mm-hmm. Miranda as Lee Scoresby. Um, <clears throat> Uh, Lee Scorsese is played by Sam Elliott in the original film. And I really genuinely cannot think of more perfect casting on this planet. There's a few things they got really right with the film. Uh, one was um, Sam Elliott as um, Lee Scorsby. Um, and the other was Eva Green as Serafina Pecola, this like witch, the head of the witches. Um, part like, I, you know, once you've gone to Eva Green, it's really hard <laughs> to like cast someone else as your, as your head witch. Um, but, um, but to go from Sam Elliott to Limo Miranda, who though, uh, I really like him. Uh, I think he's a, a genius at many things that he does. He's been an amazing like hype man for the show. I just don't think he's a tremendously good or versatile actor. Yeah. I just don't think he is. Um, he's not even a very good singer, you know, like he's, he's, he's got stage presence. He's, he was incredibly good at Hamilton in a role that like just matched his talents very well. Uh, Hamilton, of course, I think is a work of like writing genius, but as a performer, you know, like I think he stuck out like a v- huge sore thumb in the Mary Poppins film. Uh, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm concerned that, this the you know it'll be the same case here um scoresby is this you know uh you know american cowboy uh aeronaut figure uh who comes and helps lyra at a certain point and uh it's just it's a sam elliott role it's not a lin-manuel miranda role you know it just isn't so it's, it's not fair i haven't seen it yet i haven't seen him in the role yet uh he might be great but I'm just I'm very I'm incredibly nervous about that casting. So yeah. You know, we'll so like let's just can we can we like zoom back a little bit and just for my benefit yeah. and maybe some people listening and just kind of like yeah. set the table for this world because so it's like it's an alternate dimension sort of it's it's like I guess, I guess the title cards at the beginning say it's like our world but not our world right right, um, right. and so there is this obviously Oxford exists um, but there is a presiding thing uh, you know over them the magisterium that they are concerned about which is kind of a religious order is that correct yes 
it's like the church, right? Uh, a, a church government, right? Yes. Right. Um, and then there are the Egyptians who are sort of canal people. Um, and uh, I, I guess my question is, how much weirder is this going to get? You know, does it? You mentioned witches, and and you know, I know there's other things to come. Because um, this is a per- this is like real a fantasy kind of thing, right? Sci-fi. Yeah, I mean, like you know, you're starting with. You're starting with the um, fantasy. I, I would call it more fantasy than sci-fi. Uh, you're starting with these um, these demons, number one. Uh, main difference, I would say. There's also a difference in, like, uh, technology. Because it takes, like, you know, we're talking about multiple worlds, uh, ultimately, in this series. And so this is supposed to be a contemporary world to our world time-wise right but it seems more antiquated it seems older because the technology is different um so there's the demons there's the technology there's witches there's uh these uh, armored bears pants of pants i think they're called um which are you know bears that like demons can like talk and have their own culture, their own, like, uh, they wear armor. It's a whole thing. Um, and then you have this concept of dust, uh, which is what Lord Azrael is talking about a bit in this episode. And dust, dust has to do with this idea of like original sin and the innocence of children. And, um, there's a scientific element to it. You know, Azrael talks about as if it's, you know, these, these particles, these dust particles, but it's also spiritual because it has to do with like, innocence and you know if you think about adam and eve in the garden of eden and how they were innocent before they ate the fruit and you think about children and their innocence before you know they go through puberty so this idea is tied to like once you go through puberty and your demon is fixed to a certain thing you have lost your innocence in a certain way it's not as it's not as one-to-one as like uh if you lose your virginity or or whatever you know, then your demon is mm-hmm. fixed. It's not quite like that, but it has to do with like an age of maturation, a uh, puberty sort of thing. So it's tied with like sex and childhood and, um, uh, yeah. And, and so, you know, what children can see, what adults can see, what children are open to, what adults are open to. So like Azrael is interested in harnessing some of that energy in order to try. They mentioned in this episode, a city in the sky, uh, is something that he's kind of after. So that's, um, I don't know. I, I kept it like slightly vague (laughs) for people, but I, but I, but hopefully that, that orients us in this world. You know what I mean? So like our world, but, but different, but older, but slower, certainly no cell phones. Uh, and, and and um, so, so in this episode, um, we see two sort of reactions to, well, I mean, we see more than two, but like two main reactions to what Azrael kind of comes back from the North to, to talk about. One is that, um, I guess even before he speaks, speaks, um, the master played by Clark Peters tries to kill him. Um, right. even though he seems like otherwise a kind of kindly care, you know, character who cares for Lyra. Um, and then we see these two people at the magisterium sort of, talking a right. bit more grandly about so so my question for you is what is threatening about what Ezreal's saying to both the master and the people of the magisterium yeah that's a great question um so as far as the magisterium is concerned i think Azrael is interested in like um 
I think what Azrael, I think it's safe to say that what Azrael is after is concrete proof of God's existence, mm-hmm. whether or not God exists. And that is sort of counter to the interests of the magisterium, right? Because it's, it's not about science for them, right? It's about faith and what that faith, the power that that faith confers to them as sort of, you know, leaders in that faith community, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if you think of religion, I mean, this is why, you know, we should say this, these books were incredibly controversial when they came out. Um, and then the film itself was incredibly controversial for certain members of the church because, uh, it, it makes, I mean, obviously the, the church is rather, um, the church is rather villainous in this series. And, uh, you know, it, it tries, it gets a little too concrete for comfort with ideas of God and what it means and what you, what, who God is and what, what God is interested in. So, um, I think, you know, this is, I think this is Pullman's answer to the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I think he's talked about that. Um, the Narnia books, which are fantasy tied up in faith, uh, in that way. And he's like, what about fantasy tied up in atheism a bit more? And, uh, or at least agnosticism. And that's, that's interesting to me. He's looking, he's basically, it's so hard to explain, but it's basically, it's like this concept of free will. The master, I think, is less threatened by that directly and more concerned with this prophecy that he's aware of that Lyra is involved with. And I think he's just trying to like nip it in the bud. And um yes, basically Azrael's radical attempts to define and explore and probe into this world of, of religion and spirituality um, is threatening to the status quo. But I think more than anything, these men that you meet at Oxford who have raised Lyra are above everything concerned about Lyra. And so I think the idea of killing Azrael, um, which, you know, the master is not a villain, um, but killing Azrael to sort of protect Lyra, I think was, and to stop whatever he's putting in motion with his experiments, with his investigations. Does that make sense? It totally does. Yes. Thank you. That, that, I feel like that clears up. Uh, certain motivations for me. Cause I, I think that this episode, like, again, in introducing so much information, it's like, well, wait, I wanted to pause on that point. Like, I want, what, what yeah. to say more about that. Like, and, and I don't know. Um, I'm hoping in the next episode that the show takes a little, takes a deep breath and is like, okay, so we're, we're, we got that out of the way. Now we can just settle into a story. Um, but I don't know. It seems like there's a lot of story to tell in this saga. So maybe, maybe it's going to be kind of a, a jumble for, for, for a while. There's a lot, there's a lot to do. And, um, I can't help but think this, this season really could have stood to be 10 episodes, but mm-hmm. I think 10 episode is, 10 episodes is kind of the like American shortened version. And this is primarily a UK show, it's a BBC show. And so I think eight episodes is sort of like, they often do six, right? right. Eight is like kind of long for them. So, um, I think, you know, to stretch it to 10, uh, maybe feels ridiculous to them. Um, uh, but I'm like, ah, oh, we could use this extra two hours. Mm-hmm. And it's my understanding, you know, they're going to do the whole trilogy. Um, Amber, they're already, you know, have shot or are shooting the second subtle knife. Um, the second season. Uh, um, and they're trying to do it quickly because kids grow, right? Yeah. 
Um, but, um, it's my understanding that some of the subtle knife, which introduces another protagonist, uh, will be pulled into the end of this first season. Like we're going to meet some of the characters that only show up in season two at the end of this season. I think just to make it feel like sometimes the second book can feel like a full restart. Um, yeah. that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so I think they're just trying to like sort of soft lead it in from this season. So maybe that's part of their hurry. Uh, cause they're trying to get to the second book already <laughs> by the end of the first season. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think, yeah, the magisterium, uh, and the, the, the idea of a villainous church state, or at least, um, a church state that is heavily invested in keeping people in the dark, um, is a lot of what this book is concerned about, is concerned with. And the, the idea of free will mm-hmm. and, and the choice of, of the humans on this planet, uh, to do what they want to do and, and not, you know, adhere to what a God, a, a distant and, you know, unloving God wants or, or, you know, his representatives here on earth want. So, um, yeah, I mean, it definitely sets up a clear, (laughs) um, dichotomy between the academy and the church, you know, like, um, which is a pretty strong, you know, uh, evidence that, that Pullman is like, okay, like I, I kind of am doing a reason versus faith thing here. Um, and it might be sort of clear which, which side I'm on. Um, But I wonder, I'm, I'm curious to see how like viewers, um, you know, of, of varied sort of faith backgrounds will, uh, will, will respond to that. Um, my, my hunch is that, um, you know, diehard Catholics who, um, are, would be uh, upset by the show will probably already be familiar in some sense of what this, what Pullman's kind of ultimate argument is, which I have read a little bit about. And, and, um, so maybe they'll stay away regardless, but I don't know. I'm, I'm curious to see if there are like think pieces about this. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, 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 it almost feels like we already did this when the movie came out. There was right. just like yeah. so many protests and stuff like that. And I just kind of feel like, you know, the movie landed and it just wasn't a big deal. And so I almost feel like it would be silly for us to just have the whole fight over again when like the movie landed and no one cared. And it was just sort of like, whatever, um, you know, and I also feel like, were that this many years removed do you remember when the harry potter books came out there was like a lot of you know religious outcry over harry potter and how it was like evil and encouraging you know satanic worship or or you know paganism or whatever and um but uh you know i feel like the church definitely lost that argument and you have this generation that was raised on harry like we can't underestimate this entire generation that was raised on harry potter and what that does to how we think about fantasy in general, what that, that generation who is, you know, they're the millennials, right? Like millennials um, are the Harry Potter generation. They all read those books or saw those movies. So it wasn't like fantasy was just for like the nerds who were reading Narnia or whatever. Like everyone read Harry Potter. Everyone watched those movies. And so like you're dealing with a different an audience that's trained to think about these things a little differently. I don't know. I just always think about that. I I feel like we'll never, I, I, we have yet to really fully, fully, fully grapple with what everyone reading Harry Potter meant for the culture, you know? So, right. Yes. Um, exactly. 
But Philip Pullman is the benefit. All right. So let's dive in. I mean, like, let's go and talk about some of those larger things that you've read a Wikipedia summary about, Richard. Um, and I have some book specific things I want to talk about, but that's like, you know, our general sense of this first episode is, uh, a little rush of our tastes. Um, the design is almost there, but maybe not quite, uh, some good casting, really good casting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and our hope that it sort of, takes a breath, slows down and um, lets the rest of this adventure sort of unspool um, at a bit more leisurely pace. So, yeah. All right. Okay. So if you have not read the books or don't want to hear any book discussion, uh, deep, deep books discussion beyond what we've already discussed. uh, Now is the time to hop off. Richard and I are just going to touch on a few things really quickly. Uh, so Richard, what did, what did you read in, in this, uh, Wikipedia summary that, uh, <laughs> well, it's not just the Wikipedia summary, but like, you know, yeah. I have, I have several good friends who are deeply devoted to these books. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. Um, my, my understanding is ultimately that this is kind of about trying to kill God. Yeah. 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 Uh, so that'll be, <laughs> that'll be interesting <laughs> once that actually becomes manifest. And, and I guess in, 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 in reading summaries and, and talking to friends, it, what seems interesting about this series, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that Asriel does bad things, particularly one bad thing, uh, at the end of this book, or the first book, um, and, 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 and Coulter does bad things, but maybe they're not all bad, is, is that right? It's like a for the greater good thing, or also like, like Mrs. Coulter, you know, I mean, spoiler alert, sorry, I just knocked something over. Spoiler alert, uh, Azrael and Coulter, um, and Mrs. Coulter are liars, actual parents, right? Right. Um, and so a lot of what Mrs. Coulter does, um, not everything, but a lot of what she does, uh, is to protect Lyra. And ultimately, Azrael does similar. And, uh, he basically, like, he doesn't see, um, like, you know, he, he kills Roger. That's awful. And like this kid who plays Roger is so sweet and lovely in this first episode. And like, I, he kills Roger for, in pursuit of this experiment. You know, he, he kind of feels like this. It's, it's like what we talked about with succession, right? Roger's a kitchen boy. He's not a real kid, right? right. He's not yeah. a real person. He's, he's expendable for this experiment that Azrael feels like is ultimately going to be extremely important for humanity. But Lyra's different. Lyra's his kid. And as cold as he is to her in this episode, this first episode, he's also at least somewhat tender to her. He doesn't want her to go because it's, it's actually literally dangerous for her to go up to the Arctic where they are like separating children from their demons in order to figure out harness energy and figure out dust and all that sort of stuff. He does not want her up there because it is too dangerous for her. Mm-hmm. Um, so ultimately, yeah, in the end, they sacrifice themselves, you know, for Lyra, for the greater good. And, and so in the end, yeah, they are, um, not purely villainous, uh, characters. But what's fascinating about the Ruth Wilson, uh, casting is I, I do think if you watch this first episode alone, you don't necessarily know she's a villain except for the fact that her monkey is pretty creepy, but like she doesn't play it. Um, the, quite the way that Nicole Kidman did. And I like that about her because that is Mrs. Coulter. Uh, she needs to be able to basically code switch and like be, be very just charming and then just like ice cold when she decides she wants to be ice cold. And Ruth Wilson is incredible at that. No one turns on a dime faster than she does. So, uh, I think that's very good casting for her. Um, 
Yeah, and I think I think uh, McAvoy too can contain those multitudes of uh, Azrael, uh, who's a very complicated character. You you think he's the villain, and then you're like, oh, I'm not so sure. Actually, God's the villain. Let's kill God. Uh, right. This is uh, this is a, a fun a fun book series. <laughs> um, uh, and I don't mean that I don't mean that to like offend anyone who is religious or spiritual and listening. Like, as I, I think, I think, I think it's possible for Phil, for Philip Pullman to wrestle with his ideas of God and religion, to wrestle with his idea of a God that feels worth killing in order to liberate humanity. Um, without, I don't know, maybe this is uh, naive of me to say, but without taking it entirely personally to your own faith, because this is his perception of religion. But I'm not, I'm not sure even as someone who's a fan of these books, I would say that this is the, should be the perception of religion. Do you know? Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, it's more, it yeah. seems like it's more about a certain kind of organized religion, you know, and, and the sort of, um, institutional bureaucratic thing. And, and, and I guess, yeah, to the, the figurehead of that would be, would be the God. So like, but I don't know, it's never been my impression that he, that it's like an all out attack on any sort of faith. It's more just like about a kind of more rigidly institutional one, maybe. Well, I mean, I think that Pullman is, I, uh, uh, I don't want to speak for him and I'm not a, I'm not a Pullman scholar. My perception of him based on what I do know is that like, if you were, if you're religious and your faith is important to you and you are cool with letting other people live their lives the way that they want to live their lives, that Philip Pullman would be cool with you. And what he's calling to task here is exactly what you're saying, Richard, that kind of like, uh, you know, a religion that, uh, demands other people, uh, obey, the the rules that they have decided for the world uh, beyond a, a general sort of kindly do unto others sort of morality. Um, but when you get into like deciding who people can like love or marry or whatever, you know, stuff like that, um, that, that is not okay. And I agree with Phil Pullman about that. So, you know, I'm, I'm perfectly okay with these books. <laughs> um, <laughs> there are these great angel characters uh, and that's the thing is like, there are these angel characters that we'll meet later on that, um, uh, are like sympathetic to the human cause. And so in that way, represent a kind of spirituality that is, um, you know, is, is on the side of the heroes, if that makes sense. And yeah. so in that way, I don't feel like he's attacking all of religion everywhere. So. Um, anything else I want? Yeah. So, um, to be a little bit more specific, um, Will Perry, who's the, who's sort of the protagonist that we meet, who's from our world, our modern, um, world, uh, and, and finds his way to where Lyra is, um, is going, I believe is going to be introduced by the end of this season. Right. So, and then it becomes a, you know, this is Lyra's book. Then we meet Will and then it becomes a two-hander between them it's the will and lyra show so um you know that casting will be very interesting and um we'll see where all of that goes but i think that they've done what they've done a really good job of um is is in this first episode for all my critiques is underline the danger of this world which is not like it's a fun story about a girl going on an adventure and she meets some talking polar bears like that's all true but at the end of this book like a kid dies and it's very awful 
And like, that's the world this book is dealing with. And so I think it does, I think the series is a good job of setting up that danger right from the jump with like making the disappearance of Billy Costa and the disappearance of Roger, um, I don't know, land a bit harder than yeah. I think that they do uh, in in the book. Um, you well, know, it Anne sets Marie them Duff, up as I more think, like yeah. plot lines, right? Like, like now, does the Anne Marie Duff character, like with the you know with the whole like you know demon ceremony and all that, like it seems like they're they're setting her off on her own plot. Would that would that stray from the book? Does that does the book focus on on her at all? Well, no. Basically, like Lyra figures out that Mrs. Coulter is. Um, involved in the snatching of the children which she is um and so she runs away from her and she joins she she joins up with egyptians i see so they take her in and so they take her north so she basically like runs away from uh mrs coulter probably by the end of the next episode and then hops on the ships with the egyptians so they need to be so they they go that happens in the book it's just sort of like they're just there to teach Lyra how to use the compass and like help ferry her north basically as these right. sort of like mystical gypsy figures. Mm. And so I think it's really good to give them more of their own story. You know, like basically they, they, they conflated a few missing Egyptian children into one kid, Billy Costa, right. but to focus it, I think, I think that actually makes it better because it just gives it like one really strong coherent story of like, this is, this is the loss that the Egyptian community is dealing with specifically. Um, they're, they have their own mission, um, their own reason for being there. And they're not just there to help Lyra. And I think, you know, sometimes, I mean, um, Daphne Keene isn't exactly like the, the blonde haired, um, actress who played Lyra in the, um, in the movie, but like, uh, you know, I think sometimes this can happen in books where like, um, the, the more quote unquote colorful characters are all just there to help the little like right. white protagonist along. And so, um, I think I, I really like that they're giving the Egyptians a little bit more of like sinking their roots a little bit deeper in the yeah. story. I like that. Yeah. And I feel like that's also maybe crucial for, a television series that's going to kind of exist for at least a couple seasons, like is to have that kind of sturdy base of characters and, and, and stuff um, just in case they end up straying from the books at all. Maybe they don't need to because they'll have, there's enough material and, and they've got the three season plan or whatever it is. But um, you know, you never know if it's a huge hit, they'll probably want to keep it going. <laughs> I mean, yeah. And B- Philip Pullman is writing these other books, which involve like a grown up Lyra and stuff like that. So they could, you know, do that if they wanted to. But, um, yeah, it's, um, it's interesting to me. I, I also like the way that this, this, uh, show is cast. Um, I mean, not to put too fine a point on it racially, because like this is, this is modern. Oxford for as like retrograde as it might feel sometimes. And so, um, I'm glad that, you know, not all of our characters like Lord Boreal or the master or whatever are white. You know what I mean? Like it's, um, I think the BBC is really good at that, at, at casting to reflect, uh, the realities of, uh, what the UK looks like now. And, um, as much as the UK might be grappling with like all of its Brexit xenophobia, like that's something I've always been like, I noticed, I don't know, back when I started watching Doctor Who is I was just like, there's just this casual way of inclusion, uh, in the way that they cast things that American TV really struggles with, um, especially with like period material. 
And, uh, and so this feels like a period material. And so I could understand the impulse to, uh, cast it, uh, purely white. And I think the film pretty much did. Uh, so I'm glad to see, you know, for that reason, I'm glad to see Lin-Manuel Miranda in the cast mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. So, you know, um, all right. Is there anything else we want to talk about, um, in terms of this show or, no, uh, the not, future of the show? Not for me. I mean, I think that just having it explained a little bit more, uh, makes me curious to see the next episode and, and see what they do. But yeah, I wasn't, I was hoping to be like really taken by this pilot and I just wasn't, which is, um, you know, it does seem to be kind of the critical consensus, at least from people I follow, that like it's, yeah. it, it looks great, it has potential, and yet something about it just doesn't feel, um, it's not gripping. Um, I, I kind of feel that way about a lot. Like, I felt that way about Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, which was another BBC adaptation of a great, um, fantasy tome, um, that came out, uh, several years ago. I, you know, I just feel like there's, uh, something not quite like like the production design is all there all of that's in place this is definitely better than the film way better i really like daphne keen in this role a lot um but uh i don't know there's moments like roger screaming at an airship she's special you know <laughs> and Azrael being like we're all special and it's like oh that's kind of part of the thesis of the of the show but like it's it feels kind of silly. It doesn't feel quite right. Whereas like some of the Lyra stuff feels very like Roger being like, I brought you an extra sausage and then like sitting and sharing breakfast and stuff like that. I think that's like that, that kind of like sunken normalcy feels like really, really good. Um, but then there's just some other stuff that, yeah, it just doesn't feel, you know, if, if I had to pick, pick between two, you know, if you and I were deciding right now what to cover, I would pick Watchmen over this. Oh handily. yeah. Yeah. Me um, too. so you know, there we are. Um, but hopefully it will just get better and better. That that would be nice. We yeah. all want, we all want these things to be great. Sometimes pilots um, are shaky. Right. You never know. Yes, it's true. And, and like, Oh, trust me, you're all glad that you're seeing this, uh, with the, uh, special effects finished. Right. Um, you know, I get it. HBO didn't even want to show it to us. I think with the special effects, the way they were, and I understand why. And so I don't want to knock them too hard because they did at least show it to us. Um, and that was nice of them, but yeah, they were not ready to show it to us. Um, anyway, uh, so we will be back for the crown and the Mandalorian and maybe some more Watchmen. Uh, Richard, until then, where can people find you? Uh, hiding on James McAvoy's airship, which is a euphemism for something. I don't really know what, but, um, <laughs> uh, and I'll be tweeting at Rylaws and writing for VF.com. And where will you be until we meet again? Oh, I will definitely be on one of those Egyptian, uh, ships. They look really fun. Those like long <laughs> yeah. boats, those houseboats. Um, just you know, taking a I'm casual like- cruise down the canal in Oxford. Yeah, get me, get me a bird demon. Get me a, oh, that's something I didn't mention, but like I, all the Egyptian demons are birds. I like that. Same with the witches. Um, uh, because you don't, you, like it would get very crowded if <laughs> you had all those like other demons on your boat. Um, yeah, so I'll just, I'll just be like, you know, lathering on the eyeliner and joining the Egyptians on, on the boats and having a great time. And, uh, you can find both of us on vanityfair.com. You can find us on the podcast Little Gold Men and, uh, Richard and I will be back talking about Buckingham Palace uh, when we see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>